Anything that irritates the gut and causes inflammation in the brain will lead to depressive and anxious uh, type disorders. Welcome to the What Up Doc University podcast, your number one resource for total body wellness. Here's your host, Dr. Mike. Hey everybody, welcome to the What Up University podcast. It's Dr. Mike here with another special guest. This time around, I want you guys to drop whatever you're doing and pick up a pen, paper, uh, whatever you need to write something on and take some awesome notes on this call because we're going to have the encyclopedia of nutritional research. Uh, his name is Mr. Tom Maltaire. Tom, are you there? Absolutely, Mike. So great to be with you. Awesome. Guys, hey, Tom has a, has a bachelor's degree and master's in nutrition from Bastyr University. He's a faculty member of the Autism Research Institute. Um, he has an amazing website as well. Uh, whole life nutrition. He's a clinical nutritionist. Uh, worked with actually one of my favorite companies that I use uh, in my office every day, Thorn. And he did a, he did a TED talk uh, on on I guess people's most or least favorite um, vegetable, broccoli. And <laughs> right. And, and and Tom's going to talk to you all about all about that stuff today. Tom, great to have you on the call today. Oh, Mike, it's such a pleasure. As you know, right, I ran across you years ago when I was teaching myself about ukulele. And I've been a fan ever <laughs> since. So, uh, yeah, so great to be on your show, man. That's so funny, man. That's so funny when you, you mentioned that. I was like, whoa, how do people know that? <laughs> <laughs> You're amazing, man. You're out there. That's great. Uh, thanks, man. So let's kick it off, man. Let's let's start with, you know, I know you talk a lot about you know, you're uh, in your upcoming book, The Elimination Diet, uh, you talk about the microbiome um, and the gut. And that's something I'm really big on in, in my practice with with patients is start with the gut. And um, we, if we can fix the gut, you know, we can solve almost all of your issues. So let, let's so start with that. Absolutely. So, you know, the microbiome is fascinating, right? What we're seeing pretty much for every disease now, Mike, is that there's these elements of what's called lack of biodiversity, meaning that when you have a lot of different organisms in and on your body, they seem to protect you. So, like, everybody is so paranoid, right? We're always, like, washing everything and sanitizing everything, right? And we're just like, oh, no, the germs, the germs, the germs. But it turns out what we're seeing is the exact opposite. We're seeing that when you are born in an environment where you have lots of different germs you're exposed to, right, bugs you're exposed to, whether you're growing up on a farm or whether you're growing up in a big family, or whether your parents actually clean your pacifier by sucking on it themselves versus washing it off underneath a faucet, you know, all these things are incredibly protective for keeping someone's immune system calm. So, you know, when you see a person with an, an overactive immune system, this is a person who has eczema, asthma, atopy, right? So they've got lots of skin problems, lung problems. They, they can't eat a lot of foods because they'll break out in some sort of allergy, hives, you know, things. So it's, it's their immune cells being confused because it turns out that the microbes in our environment, you know, they're everywhere, right? I mean, they're 30,000 feet up in the air. They're deep in the oceans. They're everywhere. And it turns out these microbes are constantly talking to our bodies. Mm. They're constantly communicating with our cells. In fact, we have an entire system. We have an entire what would be considered our sixth sense to talk to microbes. And this is called the microbial interaction system, which 
for some reason down the line has been labeled the immune system. But really, what it is, is it's designed to be talking to parasites, it's designed to be talking to bacterium, fungus. It's, it's supposed to be, you know, communicating constantly, surveying the atmosphere around the body, in the body, and saying, all right, is this okay or is this not okay? Is our environment peaceful out there? Do we have lots of the good guys floating around or are we missing some of them? Because when we're missing some of them, we know that those microbes will protect us from some of the harmful pathogenic organisms. We know that those microbes can break down a lot of our starches, a lot of our food particles for us. We know that those microbes will produce B vitamins, vitamin K. They'll produce things that are very protective for our body, different amino acids like tryptophan. Did you know Mm. Bacterium produce tryptophan, they produce phenylalanine, they produce tyrosine, the things we need for normal neurological function, you know, to make our neurotransmitters, our serotonin, our dopamine. So, you know, the, the microbial interaction system knows. It knows that if you're missing certain microbes, then you need to be on a state of alert and alarm. Mm, you need so... to be very, very cautious, and you'll actually upregulate your response to proteins in the environment. You'll upregulate your response to to uh, pollen and dander and foods when you don't have adequate microbes around. So when you're, you know, you're talking about adequate microbes and you're missing some, what what are you specifically talking about there? Uh, just for sorry, clarification for our listeners. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, come on. Uh, we're oftentimes being born in sterile environments, right? So right. you are born in a hospital room that's been sanitized. Oftentimes, people are doing lots of elected C-sections these days. Uh-huh. And that's probably the most important exposure time you're ever going to get is birth. Right. So if you're coming through the vaginal canal, you know, maybe the mom's head is pushing, or excuse me, the baby's head is pushing against mom's cecum. Maybe a little bit of the, the fecal matter might make it out. You know, it's kind of a dirty process, the whole birthing thing, right? Sure. And that, that quote-unquote dirty process, it's actually kind of a clean dirty, but it's still dirty for a lot of people, is yeah. actually amazingly important for establishing this, this new infant's exposure to the outside world. They're supposed to be getting exposure via bacterium from mom a lot. And if they're yeah. not getting that exposure, then there are certain colonies that, that never really take hold in the body. And then after that, they're supposed to be breastfeeding. And if you breastfeed, then you know there are certain starches in the milk. They're called human milk oligosaccharides. These certain yeah. starches in the milk that actually are undigested by the baby, they're not able to be used by the baby, even though they're the third most common mass in the breast milk. So then, mm-hmm. you know, what do they have to do? Like, they, they have to be broken down by microbes, and they are very specific about feeding certain microbes, and then they can flourish. So if you have a C-section, if you're not breastfed, and then what often happens in hospital births or in young childhood these days in the United States is, you know, you get a little ear infection, what does the doctor recommend, you know? Mm. If you, if you get a little tummy ache, what does the doctor recommend? If you get a sickness, what does the doctor recommend? They recommend antibiotics. Yeah. And it's now very clear that after every single course of antibiotics, you completely shift your microbiome, and it's never, ever, ever identically the same. So, you know, you, you may be using too many. I mean, there's an entire book written on this called Missing Microbes by Dr. Martin Blazer, that's brilliant. Yeah, it just mm, basically says, yeah. hey, what are we doing out there? You know, <laughs> we should really respect our bugs a little bit more because when we do, we live happier and healthy lives. So when I say we're missing microbes, really, because of our sanitation, you know, our water purification, whatever, we're now to a point of 
missing about one-third of the indigenous microbiome we would normally see if we were living out in the woods. Wow, one-third. One-third. Microbiologists have gone around the globe, and they're looking at mountain gorillas, and they're looking at indigenous cultures and whatnot. They're saying, look, up to a third, if you're in an industrialized society like the U.S., Mm-hmm. And you've had your antibiotics and you've been doing your sanitation and stuff. You're missing a lot of microbes. So, you know, what does that manifest as? That manifests as a, a system that's kind of unstable, right? So I see this a lot in, in GI problems. I see a lot in gut irritation. And I had one uh, gentleman who went in for hernia surgery. And he had this hernia surgery. And then afterward, he had this terrible diarrhea and stomach upset and cramping and everything, Right. And mm-hmm. so he took antibiotics to get rid of that, and he took antibiotics to get rid of that. And it's like, you know, he took the antibiotics for the infection, which gave him the diarrhea, and then he took antibiotics to get rid of the diarrhea, which gave him more diarrhea. And it just went around this cycle, right? Yeah. And all this gentleman did, all this gentleman did was he just, you know, got some material from our books on, on fermented vegetables and started eating sauerkraut every day. Mm. Sauerkraut. That's it. And so he started eating sauerkraut, and within a couple of weeks' time, boom, he was done. Gut was calm, everything was fine. So in his particular case, something magical in the sauerkraut, you know, some missing microbes in the sauerkraut, helps his system find balance again. So uh, this happens all the time. It's not just about gut problems. I see this with mood. I see this with joint pain. I see this with skin issues. You know, oftentimes if you can reintroduce beneficial species, if you can calm down the gut, oh my goodness, right? All of a sudden life is good. Yeah, I see. I mean, if you just look at the st- statistics, you know, in, in the healthcare aspect of what's uh, the top leading causes of death or even the top prescribed drugs, it's always for some type of gastrointestinal thing. Um, mm. You know, and um, in my practice, I look a lot with the gut in its relation to the mind, you know, the neurotransmitters and, mm, and all that kind yeah. of stuff. And, you know the the link of depression and you know just that whole myriad of of complexes and a lot of uh i guess mainstream medical practitioners or even just uh mainstream uh community in general they don't they don't see that connection that how can my gut and its balance affect my thinking you know, dive into <laughs> a little bit about that oh my gosh you got to be kidding me right i know it's so yeah, weird right? how they're just like Oh, the brain is here and the gut's there. There's two separate mm-hmm. specialists. You know, go to a gastroenterologist, go to a neurologist, two separate. Yes. It's not It's not separate at all. Number one, you have innervation in the gut all the time that directly yeah. communicates to the brain. And number two, the gut's constantly producing things that you need for neurotransmitter function. So those those aromatic amino acids that we talked about, tryptophan, mm-hmm. come on, tryptophan is like the least common amino acid that you're ever going to come in contact with. The more, the better. And basically, you need to convert that, so you're going to need some folates in order to do that. You need some, some background uh, antioxidants in order to do that. You need a lot of different things coming from the gut just to make normal neurotransmitters. So, yeah, that's, that's number one. And then number two is people don't understand that oxidative stress, inflammation, those are the true causes of depression. Those are the true causes of anxiety. We're now seeing that chemical exposures, we're now seeing that microbe imbalances, we're now seeing food sensitivities. Anything that irritates the gut and causes inflammation in the brain will lead to depressive and anxious uh, type disorders. In fact, that's a new definition. They're saying these are 
what's called redox imbalance or, or mm-hmm. free radical rich environment imbalances, right? So not enough antioxidants in the brain, in essence, and inflammation-associated disorders, so too much irritation in the brain, right? So you've got these problems that people don't associate, but they initiate in the gut. You know, you have over 70% of your entire immune cell colonization is happening in the gut. If you want to cause inflammation, if you want to cause oxidative stress, easy. You just eat a bunch of foods that your body doesn't like, or you eat a bunch of, you know, microbes that your body doesn't like, and expose your, quote-unquote, microbial interaction system, your immune cells, which are concentrated in the gut because that's where the most microbes are, all you got to do is irritate those guys, and then they'll send chemical signals into the blood. What's the next stop from the blood, from the intestine? It's the liver. If you have inflammatory chemicals coming from the intestines to the liver, they'll excite the Kupfer cells, the immune cells in the liver. And then what's the next stop after circulation from the liver? It's the brain. Mm -hmm. So you go straight from the gut to the liver, excite the liver. Once the liver is excited, you go up to the brain. Once the liver-excited chemicals reach the blood-brain barrier, you permeate that barrier, you make it more open, and then all of a sudden you activate the immune cells in the brain called the microglia, and then boom, you know what? You've just turned on the glutamate excitatory process. You've thrown off a lot of things in the brain. You start having nerve cell death. There's all sorts of different things that contribute to depression, but really depression starts in the gut. Look at comorbidities. Look at the, the disorders that you can have in the gut, things like you know inflammatory bowel disease or irritable bowel syndrome, and you look at the comorbidities and you say, whoa, you know, most of the time these people are depressed or anxious, and they usually have sleep issues as well. And you go, wow, you know, I, I, there must be a connection, right? And you and I both know it's uncanny. My gosh, I put someone on an elimination diet, I give them some, you know, neurotransmitter-based supplements, and depression just goes away. Anxiety can go away. Not everybody, mind you, but my gosh, the vast majority of people, they're like, well, I never had any clue my food could be associated with my depression. I had no idea. And you're like, come on, you know, the research is so clear. It's yeah. more potent, more, more of the times, you know, if these people are choosing between pharmaceutical therapies where they're doing SSRIs or doing some benzodiazepines or whatever they're doing to modulate the mood, they can be on that for years and years and years. And then they'll go on these dietary changes and within weeks, they feel better. Oftentimes, they're letting go of their medication. Oftentimes, the doctors are shocked. They're going, what? Like, what did you just do? Well, I just calmed down my gut, doc. Like, wow, you know? So if people haven't tried that yet, I would say, my goodness, yeah, jump in both feet. Yeah, you know, you talk about, uh, um, you mentioned the elimination diet, and that's, you know, your your latest book coming out is about the elimination diet. Now, when people hear that, uh they don't necessarily know what that means, and they think that it's a diet like, uh, you know, I'm going to eat low fat or whatever. But explain a little bit more about the elimination diet, because this is one thing that I think a lot of people don't jump in towards as as a first line therapy. And they just kind of uh, it's often overlooked. So tell, tell us a little bit about the, the elimination diet. Yeah, absolutely. You know, this is this is probably the most potent, important tool that somebody can utilize in clinical practice. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, when you're taught functional medicine, as we are, you know, you just know that 
you remove certain foods from people's diet and they feel better. So if somebody comes in and they have joint problems, they have sinus problems, they have skin problems, you know, the first thing I do is just say, hey, we really got to look at your food sensitivities. And I'm like, what? Food sensitivities? Wow, what are you talking about? Well, come on. If you are concerned about your immune cells overreacting, that's what causes the skin problems, the joint problems, the headaches. If you're, if you're concerned about your immune cells overreacting, how do you calm them down? Since the vast majority of immune cells in your body are in your gut, you calm your gut down. Mm-hmm. And what's happening in modern day society is because we've had this missing microbe epidemic, because uh, many of us you know, are exposed to too many chemicals, we're not eating enough antioxidant-rich foods, lots of green leafy vegetables, for example, getting our sun exposure, our vitamin D that would calm down our immune cells. Because we're not in an environment of calm most of the time, we're all stressed. We're running around eating crazy stuff and whatever. And next thing you know, right, our immune cells do not tolerate certain proteins in the environment. They're not going to tolerate for people with allergies some airborne stuff. And a lot of people, they don't tolerate food proteins. So the chances, if you're going to have any interaction to excite your immune cells, the chances are that interaction is happening in the gut. So all the elimination diet does is it says, wait a second, okay. We went back hundreds of years, we looked at the research, and we said, you can have 100% of gallbladder, you know, gallstone-associated diseases benefit from an elimination diet. You can have 90% of rheumatoid arthritis benefit. You can have 85% of migraines benefit. You can find 70% of ADD, ADHD. You can find 50% of skin-associated disorders that are non-allergenic, IgE-mediated. So you could say, whoa, 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 wait, you can have a single, single intervention of removing certain reactive foods and you can affect all those diseases? Yeah, and more. So the reality is the docs have been pointing this out. The functional medicine docs, you know, the Alan Gabies of the world, the Jeff Blands of the world, they've mm-hmm. seen this. Even Abram Ho- Hoffer and, and, you know, Leo Gallen, they, they, these guys have seen this for decades and decades and decades. If you take out certain foods, people's immune systems calm down. So the yeah. primary foods that people react to are the gluten and dairy. You know, those proteins are really funky. They kind of mimic bacterial structures. They're mm-hmm. tough to break down. So if someone's going to have confusion in the intestinal tract and start reacting to a food, those are, those are the king and queen right there. Absolutely. Absolutely. You take those out, I'd say 80% of the people, you know, they just feel better. You just feel better. And maybe your disease doesn't disappear entirely, but, oh, my goodness, it gets so much better. You wonder, like, why am I... Why am I not looking at this sooner? Like, why doesn't my doctor know about this? Right? So we just add in a few more things, gluten, dairy, eggs, yeast, corn, soy. You know, you take out the top big dogs for a while. And if someone's been suffering from tremendous pain or skin issues or whatever, wow, stuff clears up. So that's all this is. We take out those inflammatory foods for a period of time, minimum of two weeks. And you'll see in the program, we're very selective as what we take out and what we add back in. They choose mm-hmm. the less reactive foods we add back in first, and we hold off the big dogs a little longer. And then you leave those out of your diet for a little while. Once you leave them out of your diet, your symptoms start to go away. Mm. And once your symptoms are calm enough, then you can, you can do your own experiment now. All we're doing is we're using your, your body as a lab. We're saying, all right, let's see. That's crazy. I don't know if I believe that guy, whatever. Let's see if I can take out certain foods and calm my symptoms down. And when you take out the food, your symptoms calm down. Then you add back the foods one by one and see who's responsible for irritating you. Who's the one? Is it the corn? Is it the soy? Like, 
Is it the gluten or is it the dairy? Are those the things that are exciting my immune cells and allowing me to experience something called a migraine or allowing me to experience something called rheumatoid arthritis? I'm not joking here, you know, at all. The research is very clear mm-hmm. in showing that migraines are likely just food-associated reactions, that rheumatoid arthritis is primarily a food-associated reaction. There are certain antibodies now that they're looking at called IgM antibodies in the intestinal tract, and they're tracing this entire disease to food reactions. So, mm-hmm. you know, this is, this is not some weird, you know, woo-woo stuff. There are hundreds upon hundreds of research papers looking at how elimination diets benefit people with inflammatory disorders. And even beyond that, there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of cases in the United States alone for people who have gone on elimination-type diets and they've freed from symptoms. So, you know, this is just tried and true, uh, really, in the functional medicine world. It's been going around forever. So it's just it's what I like to think of for people who have not heard of it before, the world's best-kept secret on how to feel better fast. So all we do is take out those food for a period of time. In the interim, my wife has made these phenomenal recipes. They taste so amazing. Nobody's suffering. You just eat a bunch of good food for a couple of weeks, watch your symptoms go away, add back in food, see who's the problem food for you, and then you customize your own diet. This is not a long-term program. You see what foods are irritating you now. You take them out for a couple of months after you discover that they've irritated you. And then you wait to see how you feel. You can add them back in if you want or not if you want, depending on how you feel. But I'll tell you, most people feel so darn good after they've taken out whatever that problem food is. You know, and for a lot of people, it's gluten. For some people, it's dairy. Some people, it's eggs. Once you take out that food or those two foods or three foods or whatever they are, leave them out for a while, your health just gets better and better and better. The skin clears up. The energy improves. I mean, gallbladder disease, it's usually within three to five days. Migraines, it's within three to five days. Energy levels, it's usually within 11, 12 days. Weight loss happens almost immediately. My gosh, the average weight loss in the first couple of weeks is seven to 10 pounds. So, I mean, if you just give your body some space not to be irritated at every meal, amazing things happen. That's all. It's interesting you touched on the the whole overweight obesity thing because that's a huge epidemic in our country that... They don't really talk about, but uh, they kind of put that on the back burner. It's just like, hey, we've accepted it. It's kind of there. You know, the country's just <laughs> getting larger and larger. That's just going to be the norm. Uh, we're going to we're gonna turn into the people from Wally. You know, we're going to lie around all day long on a cruise ship. Uh, yep. that, when when you look at obesity, what's what's what have you been finding in, in the research? Saying, you know, what's the link between food additives? Um, genetically modified stuff um, and, and, and all the, um, just the processing of food. What, what's the link you've been finding there? Yeah, well, you know, it's, it's fascinating because you started out like nailing it. I mean, the microbiome is behind everything. And what we're yeah. seeing now is there are certain strains of microbes in the system that uh, respond to certain foods and they'll send chemical signals to the liver, which will change how you metabolize sugar. It'll change how you store fat. So in essence, you know, the more you irritate your gut, the, the, the less you're going to have control of your weight. So mm-hmm. you're either going to lose too much weight because you can't absorb nutrients and your gut is terribly, you know, irritated, or you're going to irritate it just enough to send a signal to the liver. The liver says, I'm going to store fat. I'm not going to process blood sugar very well. So mm. primarily weight is controlled by gut health. I mean, this is very clear in the literature and obesity 
the epidemic, you know, sure, fructose, high fructose corn syrup, for example, added to a bunch of foods and a lot of sugar added to a bunch of foods is going to cause you to gain weight. But we're now discovering the mechanism. And the mechanisms appear that these things interact with microbes and that the high fructose corn syrup will interact with the microbes, will lead to a leaky gut and allow some of these microbes to sneak into your blood, cause inflammation. The body will protect itself, form more fat, change its metabolism of blood sugar. So, yeah, it's, it's the food additives, the chemicals, same thing. You know, interestingly enough, you know, you're hearing about plasticizing agents, right? Another article just came out today mm-hmm. showing that there's these little micro beads of plastic everywhere, right? And we're starting to no. get German beer. <laughs> it's like, what? <laughs> there's plastic in beer? What are you talking about? So these little these little chemicals in our environment and these in the food packaging and, and in food additives and whatnot, they're called endocrine disrupting chemicals. Mm. And the endocrine system is what? It's your hormone system. And we're now seeing a lot of the pesticides in our foods, a lot of the plastics in our foods, they're disrupting hormones to a point of increasing the storage of fat. In fact, there's another name for these EDCs or endocrine disrupting chemicals beautiful article written on this, by the way, in environmental health perspectives. They're called obesogens. Obesogens. Because they're literally associated with changing your hormonal function, your blood sugar metabolism, and your fat storage so much that they contribute to people becoming obese. So we look at all these things in our environment and we say, oh, you know, all right, we've got so much sugar consumption and the sugar is terrible. You know, that might increase diabetes by 1.4 times, you know, it, that might be something. Some of the data we're seeing on some of these chemicals altering blood sugar metabolism, they're increasing your rates of risk or of disease by, you know, 20 plus times, 24, 26, 28 times in one study. So it's like, what? How is that even possible? Now, most studies are showing, you know, it's two to four times or whatnot, but there's a couple of studies that just like look at specific endocrine disrupting chemicals, and they saw, you know, 20 plus times increased risk for diabetes. So that's, that's profound, and we really have to pay attention to the chemicals. So I think you're, you're spot on for, for considering that, you know, eating clean foods, eating foods that uh, don't have extra pesticides in them. And when you mention GMOs, I mean, you just have to think GMOs are a delivery system for pesticides. They're either a pesticide yeah. themselves <laughs> or they're doused in, in, in herbicide, the glyphosate, which the World Health Organization, I don't know if you saw that, just a couple of days back, came back and said, we're wondering, this may be a carcinogen, this glyphosate, this Roundup, <laughs> this Roundup that, uh, you know, everybody's been freely using on their lawns and everything oh, for years and decades. And, and, you know, the chemical companies are saying, it's so safe, you can drink it. You know, well, they were sued about that statement and lost. But yeah. uh, now we're seeing it's a potential carcinogen, according to the World Health Organization. So it's like, oh, my gosh, you know. We have no idea what we're doing with all this synthetic stuff. We have no idea what we're doing with producing all these plastics. And, and now, as a result, now there's a lot of people who have extra weight and they have no idea why. And there's a lot of people who are walking around saying, you know, what do I do? Do I have to rely on more synthetic chemicals? Am I supposed to get my, my drugs to take, you know, on a daily basis? Should I be on these four to six to nine medications? You know, the average person who comes in my practice over the age of 40 is on six meds. So it's like, you know, are those meds taking care of your problem or are they causing more side effects, which cause you to take more meds? So you just have to start asking these questions, right? And it looks like dietary intervention, doing a a very, you know, brief stint of your entire life, a couple of weeks of your entire life, removing specific foods that may be irritating your body, that's nothing. 
that's nothing in comparison to suffering for 10 years and being on a ton of medications and all of a sudden your energy's gone and your memory's gone and you're type 2 diabetic. I mean, it's really nothing. So why do you think that people don't take that route? You know, it's like we the information is out there. People know that. So why are people just being like, hey, you know what? I don't feel well. I'm gaining weight. My blood sugar's off. I'm tired. My joints hurt. Uh, oh, it's our brain, go, man. Yeah, I'm going to go to uh, my medical doctor and just get like 10 drugs. Yeah, 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 man. It's it's the brain. It's the total brain. So, you know, the, the issue that we're having is is that, uh, you know, the, the brain, uh, <laughs> someone says to themselves like, I'm going to suffer. Like, this is the worst thing ever. I can't believe someone's suggesting I don't take away my beer or my bread or my nachos <laughs> and my cheese and my grilled cheese. Like, that's just ridiculous. I could never live without that. I could, that's just, you know, I hear that all the time. Like, don't take away my milk. Don't take, I'm like, look, I'm not taking away anything. I'm telling you how to take away your symptoms. I'm saying if you want to be, be free of your pain, if you want to have a different life, if you want to have more energy, I mean, that's your option. It's up to you. If you think the drugs are working for you, by all means, do it. If you're doing whatever you're doing right now and you're happy about it, great, keep going. But if you think there's another level and you think there's some way you can intervene to reach that level, why wouldn't you try it? I mean, just for a couple of weeks, why don't you just jump in? I mean, drop the idea that you're suffering and it's prison for you to let go of bread and cheese. It may be prison and suffering for you being on arthritis meds and constantly being on a 6 out of 10 pain scale or 9 out of 10 pain scale, where all of a sudden you have these crazy bowel attacks that you have to run to the restroom and you're a prisoner to the toilet, you know, that's, that seems to be more restrictive to me. Uh, I mean, the, the chronic low back pain, the, the migraines, so many people are suffering. You one to three migraines a week, that's not normal. You're not supposed to be tired after you eat, that's not normal. You're not supposed to have four to six bowel movements a day, that's not normal. So, you know, people just don't understand. They don't understand there's something else out there. So all this is is another option. And I just encourage people, look, try it or deny it. Like, you're going to sit there forever and you're going to go, all right, yeah, that never worked. I could never do it, whatever. You know, you don't know that. You're either going to try it or you're going to deny it. So, you know, do it or die wondering, right? We used to always say that when we were surfing or skateboarding, right, as kids and how about you? Like, do it or die wondering, right? <laughs> so you, you, either, you either go out there on that big day and you see if you can do it, right? Or you're going to yeah. die wondering, saying, well, maybe, you know, I wonder, I wonder if I could have hit that. I could have really dropped in on that. It would have been a beautiful ride. It would have been amazing, you know, but no, it's too big. No, it's too big. Man, I, would, I really wish I would have, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. you're, you're either going to go for it or you're going to die wondering, like, maybe my life could have been different if I gave it a shot. It's uh-huh. not that difficult. It's not that difficult, man. You, we've got the program set up. We've got recipes. We've got all sorts of stuff. So people want to give it a shot. We've got the tools for you. Cool. Now, you mentioned a little bit about, uh, about food allergies. And I know that a lot of people get the terms confused. And then they say, well, I'm allergic to this. But it's really a sensitivity versus an intolerance. And kind of explain What's the difference between those, you know, those, those terms, allergies, sensitivities, and intolerances? Yeah, great. Excellent question. So, you know, the reality is most people consider an allergy something called an IgE-mediated reaction, meaning you have certain immune cells, certain microbial interaction cells, they're called the immunoglobulin class E cells, that will produce these antibodies and you will actually uh, have an attack against that particular substance that you produced antibodies too. 
So these these antibodies, the IgE antibodies that you're producing, will attach to certain types of foods and normally create what's called a histamine response. Mm-hmm. So you'll get the redness, you'll get the swelling. Maybe if it's happening in the the mouth, you'll get the you know swelling in the mouth or hives or sores in the mouth or on the skin. Or you'll have respiratory issues. Your breathing um, uh, rate goes up as well as it closes off and you can't get enough um, oxygen in. And so you'll end up with this uh, life-threatening issue. So everybody knows about the allergies, right? So you need the EpiPen to calm it down, right? So IgE-associated allergy, that, that's normally what an allergy is. But to be honest with you, Mike, I mean, the progressive allergists these days, immunologists these days, they're like, that's bonk. That's mm-hmm. totally bonk. Mm-hmm. Like a, a, an allergy should be considered any immune excitation whatsoever from a food. So if you have IgM, IgD, IgG, that should be considered an allergy. So there should be a new definition according to a lot of the progressive doctors out there. And they'll say, no, if you have immune excitation, your immune cells look at that food and they say, hey, man, that, that shape looks an awful lot like a bacterium or a virus or something. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to create a response against it. They'd say that's an allergy. A, a sensitivity or um, has been defined as something other than an IgE-mediated reaction. But I don't know. I think that that kind of whole idea of sensitivity should be a broad-spectrum viewpoint of you are sensitive to a food. You have some sort of sensitivity reaction. Um, The intolerance basically means, hey, um, I can't tolerate this. I don't metabolize this well. I don't usually produce enough of the ingredients that my body would allow me to tolerate this so that the I'd say the most common example is is uh, lactose. Mm-hmm. You know the the sugar lactose. It's a disaccharide lactose, and if you don't break that down into the individual sugars and allow for the absorption of those into the body, they can build up and draw fluid out of your gut and give you diarrhea and gas, nausea, bloating. They'll feed organisms in the intestinal tract if you don't break them down. The organisms break them down for you, so you end up with this cramping and, and terrible symptoms after you consume lot of dairy products, right? Well, the only problem that you have there is you don't tolerate that particular sugar. You're not having a a direct immune response to it, but you don't break it down, so the microbes break it down for you, and they cause the gas and the cramping, or you don't break it down, and your body tries to flush it out of the system, causing the diarrhea by releasing a lot of fluid. So it's, it's kind of an irritation to the body, but it's not exciting your immune cells. It's an exciting reaction from microbes and from the release of, of water to flush it out. So it's, it's not necessarily uh, what would be considered an, an allergy per se. So the intolerance thing, you know, can, can happen in the form of lactose intolerance because you don't have enough beneficial microbes to help you with starch breakdown or because your intestinal tract is damaged. People don't realize that the disaccharidase enzymes, you know, they're they're formed right on the very tip of your intestinal cells, the, mic- the microvilli, the brush border. Mm-hmm. And if you damage that brush border by, you know, eating a bunch of terrible foods full of chemicals or you're uh, having a lot of gluten, for example, that's damaging your gut. In some people, uh, you know, my gosh, you start damaging the gut. You start damaging the secretion of these disaccharidase enzymes and you can't break apart lactose. Or you could have a genetic issue, you know, in autistic kids, for example, we see more of the kids don't produce enough of these disaccharidase enzymes, and therefore they can have an issue. So it's basically, you don't tolerate it. You, you don't form something in your body that allows you to process that well, and then it builds up somewhere in the system and causes irritation. So you, talk, you just you mentioned about autism, and, and you, you know, you're on the faculty, 
at the autism research, what are you guys seeing in, you know, it, we're, well, one, we're seeing a huge increase in numbers, but what are you guys seeing as, as some of the causative factors and uh, any type of um, interactions um, for, for this to start to precipitate? Yeah, well, you know, that's great, Mike. You know, the, the concern out there is that so many people are looking for the cause of yeah. autism. Mm-hmm. They're trying to say that this is a genetic predisposition. It forms in utero. Nonsense. Sure. Nonsense. Absolute nonsense. So, yeah, there's great genetic data out there, but it doesn't, doesn't answer all the questions. You know, I was just listening to Paul Offit lecture. He's a vaccine expert guy. Huh. He was just saying, you know, the, uh, the vaccinations uh, couldn't cause autism because autism happens in utero. And, you know, there are some contributing factors that definitely help shape the environment for autism to occur in a kid, but it's not predisposed, I'm pre-defined, I should say. Mm-hmm. They, they will be uh, uh, more likely to react to environmental stimuli that can push them over the threshold into autism. So yeah. one of my colleagues, Dr. Martha Herbert, she's a brilliant neurologist from Harvard University, she says, look, Stop looking at the cause. She said, look at the contributors. Mm. She said, this is an allostatic disease, much like all diseases, an allostatic disease, meaning, you know, you start putting irritants onto a balance uh, scale. Mm-hmm. And if you reach a certain point of irritants on the scale and you don't have enough nutrients, you push a child into a state of dis-ease. Mm. So if that child has a genetic predisposition, if that child has environmental exposures in in utero, then yeah, they're going to be more susceptible to air pollution, to pesticides, to plasticizing agents, these endocrine disrupting chemicals we talked about before. And that might push them into disease more readily. You know, heavy metals in some children are more susceptible. So you say whatever their environmental exposure is, they're not able to tolerate it now. Yeah. But it doesn't necessarily begin in utero. That's been argued very brilliantly. I mean, anybody follows Martha's work, it's not somebody to reckon with when it comes to research. She has entire teams of people she works with. And uh, my gosh, yeah, it's, it's turning out it's an environmental condition. And the reason now the hypothesis is that we're rising so terribly quickly, right, at 28% increase in two years' time, uh, is that the environment is changing quickly. We're having hundreds of millions of pounds, um, if not billions, of different classes of chemicals being introduced every single year into our environment. We have all these amazing companies out here, uh, the Monsantos, the Syngentas, the Dows of the world, who are producing incredible profit by manufacturing mm. increased rates of you know, plasticizing agents for the plastic bottles or the lining of cans or receipts. And we're also doing lots of herbicides, pesticides, fungicides, we're doing all these chemicals and we're spewing them out into our environment. We're up to now, Mike, I don't know if you've heard this number, but this is American Academy of Pediatrics. We're up to 74 billion pounds of chemicals being imported or produced in the United States every single day. So okay. while the profits are every single day, that was, that's, that's not a typo. <laughs> yeah, I'll send, you, I'll send you that article. It was 2011 American Academy of Pediatrics. It was basically a warning. Wow. Thank guys. And the vast majority of these chemicals are not properly safety tested for, for kids and pregnant women. And we're just doubting the world in this stuff. And we have to expect we're going to see an increase of these conditions. Um, so it's fascinating, right? I mean, everybody's looking at a single cause. And I don't mm. think it is. I think it's our environment. I think, yeah. you know, yeah, the entire system 
is becoming uh, inhospitable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I, I know surrounding the whole autism debate, you know, you you obviously throw in the whole vaccine debate, debate, and then you know you and especially with what just recently happened in California, you know, over here in Disneyland with the measles outbreak, and you know, you got people that are very. Uh, you need to get vac- vaccinated or, you know, you're going to kill the world. And then you got the other aspect where they're just yeah. like, well, vaccines is the Antichrist and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Talk yeah, a little bit about that. Well, they both have genius. I mean, yeah, sure. I mean, you, we don't want a bunch of people dying from infectious diseases. Absolutely. Sure, yeah. But no, one, no one's died from that outbreak. I mean, there have been deaths from measles in the last 10 years. So, um, you know, and then you look prior to that in the 1960s, you say how many actual people died when there was millions of cases of measles, and they were in the hundreds, you know, it was in the two to 400 range, depending on what data you look at. So is it as deadly as we're being told right now by the CDC and Paul Offit? No, I don't, I don't see that mm-hmm. backed by scientific literature at all. In fact, I looked at one of the CDC bulletins the other day, and I was like, where are they getting that data? I'm like, I, I can prove that wrong. So I don't, I don't know if we need to get, you know, all excited about it. I think the fear factor can be kind of dangerous in itself. And I think what we're we're concerned about is is that you know they're going to start taking the rights away of both parents, children, and of uh, adults. I mean, the next phase is there's oh, already gosh, yeah. measures measures being introduced in the Senate to uh, you know actually force vaccines on adults so they keep up with their their schemes of uh, excuse me what do they call the 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 uh, schedules schedule excuse yeah me, don't, yeah schedules of vaccinations so you know. Um, the the problem is, Mike. Um, you know, some of these are, are are great, and they're going to keep some some great diseases down. And some of these have not been proven to be as safe or effective as we're being told. Uh, you know, I I just douse into the the literature and I, I look at some of the data and I, I see some weak spots. You know, and I kind of go, why why are these being touted as being you know very 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 low risk in some cases? The HPV is one of the riskiest vaccines I've I've ever seen, one of the most expensive and riskiest. (laughs) And it's never been, uh, according to the data I'm looking at, and please prove me wrong, I mean, you know, come on, I'm I'm always learning, but I'm I'm also, you know, talking to researchers directly, and I say, hmm, I don't know. I mean, there's some some weak spots. I don't see the safety and efficacy. I don't see the trials going on long enough to prove that they're as effective as we're being told they are. So I I just question what's happening right now. There's this massive massive load of media saying, you know, hey, this is this is perfectly safe, this is perfectly fine. And I look at the research and I say, you know, there's some there's some uh, you know, issues in the brain that might occur as a side effect. There's some problems here. There are some susceptible populations who have mitochondrial disorders and whatnot that might be more susceptible. And they get washed out in a lot of the epidemiological research. So I've seen numerous people in clinical practice and elsewhere at conferences who have filed cases for vaccine injury in one and and, uh, you know, they're part of research studies and whatnot. So there is another side of the story that exists that I don't think is being told as, as well as it needs to be told right now. So, you know, I don't know. I, I hope there's some balance somewhere. And on, on the other end of the spectrum, no, vaccines aren't causing all of this stuff. I mean, it's right. not you can't right. you can't look at you. You have to say that, you know, it's it's like Martha says, it's an allostatic load. Disease is always an allostatic load, like death from measles, for example. Mm-hmm. The people who are dying from measles aren't usually dying just because of measles infections. They're dying because they had a system that was weak to begin with. They were mm-hmm. living in poverty. They didn't have enough 
vitamin A, vitamin D, whatever their immune system was weak, whatever. If you look at the cases of death, I mean, there's usually some other predisposition going mm-hmm. on. It's not usually just the measles. It was a measles in a weak system. So it's the same thing with the vaccines. You say, is it the vaccines that's causing autism? You say, well, come on. No, you can't say that it's the sole cause of that. That's ridiculous. Uh, what you can say is, is that it may be a potential contributor in a person who's had environmental exposures previously, in a person who's had genetic susceptibility, you know, in a person who is under mitochondrial stress in that moment has had an infection recently. There's so many different factors involved. You can't just say in isolation vaccines cause autism, but you can say it's a potential contributor in a very susceptible individual. And that particular argument I don't think is being told anywhere. So um, that's unfortunate because it's true. Hmm. So very true. I mean, I'm seeing, you know, it's living in Southern California. You know, I see both sides of it. It's a heated debate. Um, you know, you get the letters coming back from my son's school saying, hey, you know what? Um, there's a measles outbreak and you got to get all, every, get, get all your vaccinations up to par. And, and all of this it looks very just scary propaganda on the outside of it all. And it's like when, as soon as you step up to question and, and say, well, what's, what's behind it all? And um, what on, a, on a natural aspect to kind of prevent all of this stuff going on, it's kind of like you get this, you get this death stare, you know, and be like, well, why are you even wanting, wanting to protect your child in that way? And it's just, I mean, are, are you guys seeing that up, up in the Pacific Northwest? Is this kind of... It's all over the place. It's happening around the globe. And it's, it's, it's uncanny. Like, you know, how, how is it that this one outbreak in, in California kind of flipped the switch on the international discussion about this? Like, you know, I'm an author and I try and, you know, promote mm-hmm. my book or whatever else I try and do. And I notice how hard it is. You have to buy media. You have to buy mm-hmm. public relations, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I wonder how is it that this topic has gotten so immersed in the media as much as it has? How has it spread across the world like wildfire? How is it that every single, you know, politician is now being lobbied, lobbied very intensely mm-hmm. to pass certain, uh, you know, I would say uh, bills uh, that would be related to this? Is this an accident? And you mentioned an interesting word. You said it, it almost feels like it's propaganda. I don't know. All I, all I know is, is that it takes money to make ideas happen in this society. Sure. So is is there something behind this? I mean, who's paying the lobbyists who are showing up all of a sudden at all these, you know, meetings across the globe? Like, where's this coming from? I don't. I don't know, man. I have no idea. Um, you know, I can I can speculate, but I don't think that would be fair. I would say just um, something's going on. That's all. Yeah. There's something going on behind every every single aspect, and and I think the one thing is that people get too wrapped up in in the big picture of it all, and and they lose they lose uh, focus on what's right in front of them. Um, where you know, take care of your own circle first, and then and then you know it'll it'll spread elsewhere. Um, so, kind of like with that said, what would be your advice on? or for our average average listener on kind of taking steps forward to increase their health, you know, what would be, what would be your, you know, top three things that you would say, Hey, you're sick. You're not feeling well. Here's where you start. Give them the top three things. I got it. You bet. Got it. First things first, you know, I mean, we're always learning this in functional medicine. You got to get rid of irritants. So, uh, you know, less irritants, more nutrients. Mm. 
Mm. And the primary thing that I'm seeing in people's lives right now, the primary exposure they're going to have in their environment to irritants will be from their food. Whether it's going to be the chemicals in the food, whether it's going to be the food proteins themselves, someone's reacting to gluten or dairy, for example, then if you get rid of those irritants, you're fighting less of an uphill battle. You can start leveling the playing field, if you will. You know, Dr. Mark Hyman, I learned from him in 2007, and he said, look, hey, to a room full of physicians, right? I had someone from Stanford uh, on my left and, and uh, another person on my right. And, and I'm sitting there, and this guy comes up, and he's a young doc, and he says to the old room, he says, look, you guys don't have a nutritionist in your, your clinical practices. You're not practicing medicine. Mm-hmm. And everybody's like, what? And then he says, look, I put all my clients, my patients, through my nutritionist first, I put them on an elimination diet, and they get so much better. They get so much better, you know, 80% of the symptoms dissipate enough to a point where I can fine-tune and get to the root of what's going on. But if I don't find out their food sensitivities first, there's too much inflammation. I don't know what's causing it. Mm. He says, you got to get to the root of that, that inflammation in the gut first. So he recommends the elimination diet. I recommend the elimination diet first. So take away the food sensitivities. You're fighting less of an uphill battle. Second that, there are two miraculous nutrients that you need in your life, or I should say nutrient sources that you need in your life to balance out health more than anything else. One is the cruciferous family of vegetables. Mm-hmm. That's where we get into my TED Talk, we get into broccoli, we get into broccoli sprouts, and we say, nothing ramps up your antioxidant, your detoxification function better than these cruciferous vegetables. So if you can get in some you know, half cup or quarter cup of broccoli sprouts a day, if you can get in some broccoli, cauliflower, cabbage, kale, Brussels sprouts, arugula grows really nicely in California. You know, mm. some of these vegetables that really ramp up your detoxification systems, your antioxidant systems for 90 plus hours. So, you know, it's better than orange juice or blueberries. I mean, they mm. ramp up your system's ability to combat toxins, excrete more pollution in your urine, to make sure you protect yourself from cancer, from depression, all sorts of different things. So the cruciferous vegetables, yes. Try and get a serving, a two a day. It would be great. At least five servings a week. And then, you know, the last thing would be let's get some sun. You know, a lot of people out there are really paranoid about skin cancer and for good reason. You don't want to fry your skin. But at the same time, you want to make sure that you get a light darkening of your skin after you go out in the sun. So if you're Caucasian, usually that's after 10 to 15 minutes. If you've got olive toned skin, then then that's going to be, you know, maybe for 30, 45 minutes. If you're African-American, that might be an hour and 20 minutes. And you need that sun exposure to form more vitamin D. And if you're not able to get that sun exposure, you may want to consider supplementation of vitamin D because we're now finding this is one of the most potent immune modulating substances on the planet. And we're seeing a decreased risk for cardiovascular disease and many cancers and whatnot. So um, the one exception about the vitamin D, though, is, of course, if you're going to take high dose vitamin D or get lots of sun exposure, you may want to make sure that you're getting adequate K2. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're seeing in some of the literature, you know, where people ramp up their D and they ramp up their calcium, they end up with more calcified arteries, so too yeah, much calcium yeah. in the system, right? And the one, one way around that that's been really well documented for the last decade is that if you have adequate vitamin K, you will not calcify those soft tissues. So uh, taking some vitamin K2 with your vitamin D supplementation, taking some vitamin K2 if you're getting a ton of sun exposure, making sure you're eating lots of green leafy vegetables, hopefully converting into K2 with a healthy microbiome in your gut, 
So, yeah, you know, I would say food sensitivity, cruciferous vegetables, sun exposure. There you go. Well, what's your recommendation for vitamin D levels if they're, if they're not getting sunlight uh, and, and they're just going straight supplementation? Yeah, you know, there's a great resource for this. Carol Bagerly, I started uh, going to her conferences in 2009. Mm-hmm. She's wonderful. She's mm-hmm. uh, UCSD down there, right? So yeah. um, she has something called uh, grassrootshealth.org. Mm-hmm. And grass, Grassroots Health um, has this beautiful chart. And the chart basically shoots for people getting in the 40 to 60 nanogram per ml range. So she on that web, yeah, she on that website basically breaks it down to tell you exactly how much supplementation you need and how long it will take you to get to that particular level. So she has a wonderful resource there, grassrootshealth.org. So I'll I'll turn that uh, that question over to her. Awesome, awesome. One last thing. Um, Outside of your upcoming book, The Elimination Diet, what would be your one book that you would recommend our leaders, our leaders, our readers to listen, uh, listen or uh, read? Especially because of what's going on with the, the measles and stuff in California, I would say hmm. the epidemic of absence. Ooh. And the reality is epidemic of absence kind of really changes our mindset about exposures to parasites, exposures to microbes. And it basically talks about how evolution has occurred, right? We form these entire systems, these microbial interaction systems, to be able to train us. And when we're missing these childhood exposures of varicella or pertussis, uh, things like chickenpox and whooping cough, then, you know, we may be shifting how we develop our immune systems for the rest of our lives. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not against vaccinations at all. I, I think there's a lot of protection level there, in, in, especially in, in populations who are very weak or malnourished. And, yeah. and you know, that's, that's, that's definitely a consideration. But I, I don't think we can throw the baby out with the bathwater. I don't mm-hmm. think we can say that um, by altering immune cell communication, contact early in life, that we're not manipulating what nature had intended. Yeah. So, um, you know, the epidemic of absence just kind of opens our minds that, you know, wait a second, there's this very finite relationship, very beautiful, natural evolutionary relationship that has occurred over time. And it's more, it's not really about the infectious diseases. It's more about the parasite, more about the bacterium and how they increase our risk for disease when they're gone. And it talks about what we're doing in our society to sanitize and get rid of everything. And it basically makes you stop and think like, whoa. Like, who was here first? You know, the, yeah, the yeah, microbes yeah. are here. Like, maybe we're carriers for the microbes instead of the other way around. Mm. Um, it's fascinating. It's just a fascinating, extremely well-written investigative book, uh, Epidemic Bastards. Check it out. Cool. Where can people find more information about you and, when, uh, and where can they get the book and when can they get it? Absolutely. WholeLifeNutrition.net. WholeLifeNutrition.net. And basically, you know, you can just pop on the site. There's pre-order stuff for the book right there. And if oh. you do pre-order the book on our site, uh, my wife has put together an amazing cookbook full of recipes that are absolutely free. So just pre-order the book, enter your order number, and you can get that cookbook there. That's just great. And a quick start guide. And then, you know, come and sign up for our newsletter. We're sending out all sorts of, you know, crazy new research. I mean, I'm, I'm reading articles every single day. I'm plugged in. I don't own a television, so I don't watch TV. I just read articles. And if you want to learn about some of the trends that are coming up in the science, and here are some really cool case studies from clinical practices for both me and, and the physicians that I work with. Uh, you know, I run these things called progressive practitioner coaching programs where I teach doctors about functional medicine online. So 
you talk about all the new science and the case studies, it's pretty fantastic. So, uh, yeah, if you want to plug into that, just go to wholelifenutrition.net and sign up for our newsletter. Perfect, perfect. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today and sharing with us all of your knowledge, man. Oh, Mike, my absolute pleasure, man. I, you know, I'm just learning just like every day. I just, you know, I interview docs and I, I try and learn what I can. And the whole reason, my friend, is because it seems as though nature is wise. It seems as though we, we can step back um, from our intelligence sometimes and trying to figure it all out and be part of it. You know, we can eat organic, natural foods. We can get some more sunshine. We can actually have health because of that. We don't have to manipulate as much as we think we do. And uh, I think we can live happier, healthier lives because of it. So I, I think it's time to get rid of unnecessary suffering and, and uh, get people happy again, huh? Cool. There you have it, guys. Listen to Mother Nature.